Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joel Kraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Wednesday evening, where we continue our reflections into the book of Revelation. We will be wrapping up chapter 8 this evening and on our way into chapter 9. Huh? But before we go there, I just want to continue to thank all of you who are tuning in by way of podcast in the countries of Mexico and Canada, uh, Brazil, certainly, Argentina, Chile, and also in Europe, in particular Western Europe, uh, Italy, France, Portugal, Spain, Germany. I see all of you on the index feed. And as I've said in the past, it really does uh, warm my heart to see that you are taking time out of your busy schedule to reflect with me into uh, the Christian Catholic faith and over this past month into the book of Revelation, right? We are studying this book because this is what you requested. And I know I have been able to answer some of your questions, but as I have said before, other questions will be answered as we continue to move through this book because most questions are best answered within the context of the book itself, within the chapters that we find uh, your questions. So let us engage chapter 8, verses 10 to 13. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the fountains of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became wormwood, and many men died of the water, because it was made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light was darkened. A third of the day was kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew in mid-heaven. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets which three angels are about to blow. Okay, what can we say about these verses? Well, just as the image of the burning mountain cast into the sea originally referred to the fall of Babylon that we talked about yesterday, the fall of the great star from heaven echoes Isaiah's prophecy about Babylon's coming destruction. What do we read in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12? How you have fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn. Also, wormwood is another word for judgment overtones. I know some of you out there have, have uh, read C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters, and you probably read wormwood and, and think about the screw tape letters. <laughs> wormwood was also frequently used in warnings to Israel. If you were to go to Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 18, Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 15, you find these warnings to Israel. In addition, the eagle flying in mid-heaven evokes judgment prophecies. The image of a, of a carrion bird was often used in context where Israel is told that it will be destroyed for breaking God's covenant. So, my dear friends, the point is clear. A reckoning is eminent. The angel warns that with the last three trumpets, the final three woes shall come a word which itself is a term usually associated with covenant judgment, right? Does not Jesus pronounce 
a dreaded sevenfold woe on the Pharisees in Matthew 23 for telling their judgment. So this chapter, chapter 8, very much has us reflecting into disasters, uh, calamities. Now, before we go into chapter 9 and continue our reflections directly from the verses, I did want to make a comment about some of the things that we've been reading about as it relates how to best understand them today. Because even great natural disasters are not hopeless calamities. What do I mean? Those who know God have no need to be afraid, but can trust Him even when trouble comes. Is this not what Psalm 46 tells us? You see, my friends, God is working out His purposes. God Himself limits the effects of disasters, preserving the world until the time comes for its renewal. God hears the prayers of His people. Our prayers are precious to Him. Is this not what we talked about over the past few days in relationship to prayer? That God hears the prayers of the people, and they are precious to Him. We should be especially mindful to be praying for all those who are experiencing suffering, whether they are believers or not, that they might receive both physical and spiritual help. And what am I talking about now? Well, of course, the the spiritual and corporal works of mercy, the spiritual works of mercy at the service of the soul, and the corporal works of mercy, of course, at the service of the body. Now, although Revelation shows that many experience judgments and do not repent, the biblical precedents of Egypt and Jericho that we talked about yesterday give grounds to hope, and for this reason we ought to be praying for their conversion. In Jericho, Rahab the harlot and her family acknowledged the superiority of Israel's God, and they were saved from destruction and joined to God's people. Brothers and sisters, intercession for all people is good and pleasing to God our Savior, who wills everyone to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3-4. to Okay, I wanted to make sure that we touched upon that point one more time as we move out of chapter 8 and into chapter 9. Okay, so this is chapter 9, verses 1 to 5. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key of the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green growth or any tree, but only those of mankind who have not the seal of God upon their foreheads. They were allowed to torture them for five months, but not to kill them, and their torture was like the torture of a scorpion when it stings man. That's some rich stuff there, huh? What's this? language in regards to uh, not harming the trees. Well, there is what we call a moral ecology. You know, Scripture teaches that there is a link between human conduct and blessing in the natural order. According to Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 to 18, alienation between human beings and their environment is a consequence of the fall, right? Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat its yield all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bear for you, and you shall eat the grass of the field. 
According to Genesis chapter 6, verses 11 and 13, the reason for the flood was that human beings had corrupted the earth through violence. Isn't that interesting? In Leviticus chapter 18, verses 25 to 28, does not God warn Israel not to engage in the immoral practice of the Canaanites that defiled the land such that it vomited out its inhabitants? The prophet Jeremiah laments in chapter 12, verse 4, how long must the land mourn? the grass of the whole countryside wither because of the wickedness of those who dwell in it. Beasts and birds disappear, for they say, God does not care about our future. Maybe some of you are making the observation, well, that's just the Old Testament. It's not a matter that we find in the New Testament. Well, no, that's not true. Go to Romans chapter 8, verses 20 to 22, arguably the most important chapter in Romans, if not all of Paul's epistles. Creation was made subject to futility, not of its own accord, but because of the one who subjected it in hope that creation itself would be set free from slavery to corruption and share in the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that all creation is groaning, groaning in labor pains even until now. So Paul looks forward to creation's liberation, if you will, at the return of Christ when our identity as God's sons and daughters becomes fully manifest. Other texts speak of creation's renewal when God's kingdom comes. If you're to go to Psalm chapter 96 or Isaiah chapter 11, certainly in recent decades, people have become aware of the importance of being good stewards of the environment through conserving resources and safeguarding air and water from harmful contaminants. But as important as this is, Keeping God's word is even more important, even for the life of this planet. Something that Pope Francis did in his encyclical on creation was place the, the emphasis on what? A human ecology, right? Because if we're going to establish a moral ecology, we must first establish a human ecology. There is no one topic, my friends, that you can disassociate or disconnect from the overarching truth of any and every Christian faith, that before we understand the task at hand, in this case being stewards of creation, we must first understand the gift. Huh? So again, very important, as in the opening verses of chapter 9, we find ourselves reading about this call we have to be stewards of the environment. Now, what else is here? Well, look at verses 1 to 2. The image here of the fallen star should probably be understood as a fallen angel. Stars, as we saw in Revelation chapter 1, verse 20, are used as symbols for angels. The image of fallen stars as fallen angels is also used in Revelation chapter 12, verse 4, verses 9 to 10, and verse 13. How about the bottomless pit? The bottomless pit also has deep roots in biblical and apocryphal writings. A certain tradition actually located the bottomless pit under the temple. This pit, which in the Greek is abusos, huh? abusos, which means abyss, is also mentioned in Job as the dwelling place of Leviathan. If you were to go to Job chapter 41, verse 31, you read of this. Now, this is interesting because Revelation describes Satan as what? But a dragon, a dragon in chapter 12, verse 3 and depicts him as being cast into the pit in Revelation chapter 20, verses 2 to 3. So Revelation 9 
therefore, is closely related to Revelation 12 and 20. And certainly we will speak much more to this when we get to those two chapters. All right, how about verses 3 to 5? As mentioned previously, the locusts are reminiscent of the plague that, of course, Moses sent on the Egyptians. In fact, John's description of the immense number of locusts as smoke which darkens the sun and air parallels Exodus 10.15, where we are told that the locusts covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened. Yet, the locusts John see are far more dreadful than those seen by the Egyptians, since what he sees are not actual locusts, but demonic forces. Demonic forces. The five months of torture probably refers to the the typical lifespan of locusts. Locusts would hatch in the spring and and die at the end of summer. Uh, The number five is also frequently used throughout the Bible as a number meaning a few. So five could be used here to signify a short period of intense suffering. Furthermore, there is probably a connection between Revelation chapter 9 verses 1 to 5, the verses we just read, and Luke chapter 10. Like John's vision of a demon falling like a star, Jesus says what in Luke chapter 10 verse 18? I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. As the locusts are compared to scorpions, Jesus goes on to say in verse 19 there, I have given you authority to tread upon serpents and scorpions. Do you see what happens when you read sacred scripture carefully? Do you see what happens when you read one verse in light of the chapter and that chapter in in the light of the book? And in this case, one book in the light of another book, the Gospel of Luke in the light of Revelation. Again, what you see is the continuity that is realized when you interpret sacred scripture in light of the Spirit. Remember, my friends, sacred scripture is the inspired word of God. And as such, as it has human authors, which speak to a very real historical situation, it also has a divine author. And that author is the Holy Spirit. The authors of sacred scripture were inspired under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is perfect harmony. Yes, it is love. But an expression of love is that perfect continuity, that perfect harmony. So why am I talking about all this? Because again, you won't find a disconnect as much as many people think they find it. And sacred scripture is so contradictory and and illogical. No, when you understand one verse in light of the whole, it begins to make sense. Jesus is inviting us to study sacred scripture carefully that we might come to see the beauty and the wonder of how God works in sacred scripture. We gain insight into Revelation chapter 9 verses 1 to 5 in the light of Christ's words in verses 18 to 19. So all that being said, just as the locusts cannot harm those who have the seal, Jesus tells the apostles what in Luke chapter 10 verse 19, nothing shall hurt you. Luke also records the request of demons to Jesus that he not send them back into the abyss. Now, the five months of the locusts may also have a certain first century fulfillment in the persecution of uh, Florus. Florus was the procurator of Judea who killed thousands of Jews for five months beginning in May of 66 AD. Josephus marked this persecution as the beginning of the war that destroyed Jerusalem. 
So building upon what we have already said in great detail about the significance of that war, certainly we can find a link there. You see what happens, my friends, if we don't consider the significance of what took place from 66 to 70 AD? We just leave far too much on the table, and we really do need to bring this in. Okay, how about Revelation chapter 9, verses 6 to 10? And in those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, and death will fly from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses arrayed for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had scales like iron breastplates, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails like scorpions and stings, and their power of hurting men for five months lies in their tails. So what we are made to understand here, my friends, is that the plague of locusts will be so harsh, people will long for death. This is a common image used in the Bible to describe severe suffering. Now, there is uh, an interesting juxtaposition that ought to be made between Revelation chapter 9 and uh, the prophet Joel. It's certainly a comparison that Michael Barber makes in his work coming soon. If you go to chapter 9, you read in verse 7, in appearance the locusts were like horses arrayed for battle. In Joel chapters 1 to 2, we read what? The locusts' appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run. In Revelation chapter 9, verse 8, we read, their teeth like lion's teeth. In Joel chapter 1, verse 6, we read, its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. How about Revelation verse 9? What do we just read? They had scales like iron breastplates, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. Well, how about Joel chapter 2, verses 5 and 7? As with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on tops of mountains, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Like warriors, they charge. Like soldiers, they scale the wall. So it's pretty clear. Revelation chapter 9, verses 7 and 9, seem to be taken from Joel chapters 1 to 2 which also describes the coming of an enemy nation as the locusts descending on Israel. It is also interesting that just as in Revelation 9, the locusts in Joel come at the blast of a trumpet, at the blast of a trumpet. This prophecy of a demon-infested country seems to be confirmed in the accounts of who, once again, but Josephus. Josephus, who saw his own people plummet to the depth of wickedness in ways he could hardly imagine, described how the people of the city had an insatiable inclination to plunder and, and for the murdering of men and abusing of the women. It was sport to them, Josephus said. They devoured whatever they found, even drinking blood, like the locusts in Revelation who had hair like women. The zealots became transvestites. Isn't that interesting? Josephus lists numerous wicked practices, which certainly we can't get into right now, and I wouldn't do over the air. Okay, how about Revelation chapter 9, verses 11 to 12? They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. 
The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Now, Abaddon is from the Hebrew word for destruction, just as Apollyon is the Greek word for destroyer. Here we see that the locusts are not simply annoying bugs, right? <laughs> the locusts we see in the book of Revelation are a little bit different than the locusts we were talking about in relationship to the plagues, right? These are not annoying bugs, and even if they are big annoying bugs, no. These are Satan's minions, and this is what the book of Revelation wants us to see. Some have also noted the close connection between Apollyon and the name of the god Apollo. Uh, Roman emperors frequently associated themselves, of course, with this god. John, therefore, may also be revealing that demonic forces are the true power behind Rome's strength. Certainly, that is suggested there. As I've already talked about what took place in 66 AD and 70 AD came under the strong arm of who but Nero, right? The brutal emperor. Okay, how about uh, this language of the first of the three woes mentioned here? John reminds his readers that uh, two still remain, and they are described in the following verses. So verses 13 to 16. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels were released who had been held ready for the hour, the day, the month, and the year to kill a third of mankind. The number of the troops of cavalry is twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. So, before the seventh seal was opened, John saw in chapter 8, verses 1 to 5, what? But angels bringing the prayers of the saints to the golden altar. Here we have another reference to this altar. As we saw in Revelation chapter 8, the prayers of the saints should probably be connected to the cries of the souls under the altar who pray for vengeance. Therefore, the reference to the golden altar here may imply that the events which follow the sixth trumpet represents God's response to the prayers of the saints. This certainly is a fair interpretation. As in the other trumpet judgments, a third of men are killed. This third seems to indicate but what a partial number. Now the destruction certainly is meant to lead those left to repent, but of course we know they do not. The number of the troops as 10,000 times 10,000 is not necessarily meant to convey an actual number. The Greek Old Testament frequently uses this same construction to express a large group impossible to count. So just as the other day we were talking about the importance of specific numbers and going into sacred scripture to appreciate what those numbers mean, here the number given, if we're going to appreciate it within its larger context, it's communicating, expressing, if you will, a large group impossible to count. How about the coming of the army from the north of the Euphrates? Uh, this also is fulfilled by the Roman destruction of Jerusalem. Now, the Roman legions came down from the north through Euphrates, huh? On their way to Jerusalem. Josephus tells us that the 10th legion, which helped in the destruction of the city, was stationed just beyond the Euphrates. So another nod to what took place at, what did Jesus say? The end of this generation, 
Remember that the word generation in the Greek is genoa, which represents 40 years. So certainly, again, he's talking about how the temple in Jerusalem will be destroyed as a judgment upon Israel, and that ultimately would lead to a new Jerusalem and a new worship that we have talked about a great deal. Okay, I'm looking up at the clock, and uh, I tell you what, we will go through uh, three more verses. How about that? We'll go through three more verses. Chapter 9, verses 17 to 19. And this was how I saw the horses in my vision. The riders wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur issued from their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur issuing from their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. Their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. Now, the description of the writers here is similar huh, to the locust from the fifth trumpet judgment. They both wore breastplates. They both are like horses, and they both are lions, right? And they both have power to harm with their tails. In other words, the two trumpets describe different waves and of attack by the same demonic forces. The association of these warriors with serpents also has obvious demonic implications. That these warriors wound by their tails, which are like serpents, may also be an allusion to uh, Genesis chapter 3. That serpent didn't bring physical harm, but what did we talk about? Spiritual death. Perhaps this points to the real damage caused by this uh, satanic army. They lead their victims into sin. So much can be gained, my dear friends, by a careful reading of the fall of that text that comes to us from Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. Why? Because once we come to understand that in the light of Genesis 2, verses 15 to 17, those verses in which we discover Adam was given an ultimatum. If you let the serpent in, you will die either a physical death or a spiritual death. Well, we know the serpent got in, and ultimately we know that he did not choose a physical death, but a spiritual death. He chose sin. He chose to deny God, as did Eve. So something to be mindful of as we are talking about this, because there's always an emphasis when you start talking about the book of Revelation on maybe physical death, and then not enough emphasis on sin. Well, <laughs> as we just noted, this satanic army very much might be about leading their victims into sin. Okay, with that, let us close with a word of prayer in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good and gracious God, we do just give you a special thanks and praise for the gift of this time we have to reflect into the richness of your word, this particular chapter, chapter 9, that has us reflecting into these extraordinary diabolical images, these images that really ought to, if nothing else, convict us that we are sinners and that we are in need of your mercy. We pray all of these things in your most holy and precious name. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. 
If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.